Let's open your Bibles to John chapter 6. Or God willing, this morning we will complete our study of the 6th chapter of John. John chapter 6, in the 8th and final part of our study through this chapter. And it, it's unusual to have a part 8 in a series, but the chapter is so unified. I hope you'll see even more clearly this morning, that the chapter is a unified whole, and it needs to be interpreted as a whole. It's a really high mark in the Gospel of John. In John's Gospel, we are introduced to Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, and initially we focus on his ascension to prominence as he quickly gathers disciples, works a notable miracle at Cana, reveals his glory, they believe in him, And yet, sadly and tragically, the high watermark of the success of Jesus' public ministry in John's gospel occurs at a Samaritan village in chapter 4. It's the only unqualified success. He returns after that. They want him to stay, and he rebukes the people for their unbelief. They're demanding to see miracles. And then starting in chapter 5, we get the first direct, clear opposition to Jesus. And by 5.18, the Jews are seeking to kill him. And we see in chapter 5, as he insists on his deity, as he insists on his equality with the Father, why the leaders in Jerusalem were enraged and why they want to attack him. Well, in chapter 6, we learn why. Why would the crowds that flocked to him, why? Why would they turn away from him? And chapter 6 is the story of the most commonly told miracle of Jesus in the Gospels. If you exclude his resurrection, this is the only public miracle Jesus does that's in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. It draws a massive crowd. And yet by the end of chapter 6, we have winnowed our way down to a very few, to a very few. And what the central issue comes down to is what do you do with the difficult words of our Lord. The problem facing Jesus' disciples is not unique to them. I know from my own study of the Bible, I know from talking with others, that we can come across texts, words from the Lord, but I'll focus in on words of Jesus just to be closer to this text, not that there's any practical distinction between one member of the Trinity or another authoring Scripture. When you come across a text that seems difficult, challenging, angular, ugly, hard, they're there. Not because God's word is hard or angular or ugly, but we are. And so you come across Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage, and like the disciples, you say, if this is true, it's better for man not to marry. That's a hard teaching. Or you come across Jesus' insistence of forgiveness of enemies, blessing those who persecute you. That's a hard word. I've talked to people that that is very hard for them. Or how's about just Jesus' plain teaching on self-denial? We sang this morning, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. Why? Because in Luke 15, Jesus says, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, anyone who loves father or mother more than me cannot be my disciple. Jesus demands for radical allegiance. And I've, I've talked to families where Jesus' word is clear. One of the things I love about Jesus is he does not bait and switch. He refuses to bait and switch. And so he's got some hard words where he says plainly, look, if you have to choose between loving your wife or your son or your daughter or me, you choose me. And that can be really hard when a loved one is having a wedding that ought not to happen as happens nowadays from time to time. 
What do you do with the hard words of Jesus? Or Jesus' insistence that we give to Caesar what is due to Caesar and the honor, and you don't want to honor Caesar because, frankly, Caesar seems dishonorable. Or maybe it's doctrinal teaching. We've seen some hard teachings in John chapter 6 on election and predestination. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Even in our text this morning, we'll see the same thing. Or another teaching of Jesus that can seem hard and angular. Jesus' insistence on church discipline. Matthew 18, that if you're aware of that the Lord allows you to see sin in a, another believer's life, you are obligated. King Jesus commands you go talk to them one-on-one. You don't share a prayer request. You go talk to them. And then you follow that through, and if necessary, it leads to excommunication. That's a hard teaching. What do, you, what do you do with the hard teachings of Scripture? What do you do with those hard teachings? I would suggest to you this morning that our text makes it clear that what you do with the hard teachings of Scripture, in particular the hard teachings of our Lord, reveals whether you're a Christian. I, I think nothing less than that is at stake. We're going to see true and false disciples. We've, we've narrowed this down. There's a great crowd. We dealt with them. Then we centered on the Jews, but they're grumbling. And now the disciples show up. You know, the ones who got in the boat and crossed the sea. Surely the disciples, people who've named themselves to be learners from Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, surely they will will respond differently. Nope. And we'll narrow all the way down to the 12, and Peter's going to make a great confession, but even in the 12, there's a traitor. This is a winnowing passage. It starts broad. At the end, there's Jesus and a handful of people standing. So let's read the conclusion of chapter 6, John 6, 60 to 71. And, and be thinking practically about what distinguishes true and false disciples. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away also as well? Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Lord God, as we study this passage, we pray that you would give us the faith to respond as Peter and the twelve, not as the fickle, unbelieving disciples. We pray that you would give us the clarity to receive not just those passages of your word, not those teachings from our Lord that seem beautiful to us, those passages that seem hard, challenging. We might prove to be your disciples. 
Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're, we're going to look at this passage in two points. And I think it's pretty clearly divided in the text. In point one, Jesus exposes the unbelief of false disciples. Verses 60 to 66. And then in point two, Jesus establishes the faith of the 12. We're going to look at false disciples. We're going to look at the 12. And from this, we're going to learn what the deciding factor is. What, what is it about a true disciple that is distinguished from a false disciple? Um, what, what is it? And, and I want to make one further point. It is sometimes popularly taught that one becomes a Christian first and later one becomes a disciple. Here, there are disciples who forsake Jesus, and unless they repent of that, they will go to hell. Salvation is not a lower tier than discipleship. It's probably a greater one. He's, many of his disciples, and it's the disciples who's apostatize, at least in John's framing of this. If your goal is just to be a disciple, you need to set the bar a little higher. You can be a disciple and abandon Jesus and go home and not walk with him anymore. And we want to know, what, how do we have life? This is all about life, eternal life. Whoever eats of his flesh, drinks his blood, has life. His words are spirit and life. I hope, I trust, you, you want to have life. Okay, then we've got to set our sights a tad bit higher than disciple. At least these guys here. Jesus exposes the unbelief of false disciples and begins with their complaint. When the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it. This is a hard saying, who can listen to it. Now, not all the disciples are going to go away. But let's focus primarily as Jesus speaks to and unmask those who are unbelieving. What about them? How do we identify them? We're going to get this contrast between them and Peter speaking for the 12, nay, the 11. They're offended at what Jesus has said. Jesus has just taught plainly very hard things, what eating his flesh, drinking his blood. We looked at this last week. Hard sayings, insistence that he has come down from heaven, insistence that he is the true bread. Their fathers ate bread in the wilderness and they died. He's going to give bread that a man will eat it and never die and live. It's a hard saying. It's a very hard saying. And yet the words that John has in their mouth are significant. Part of the reason this is a unified chapter is who can listen to it connects directly with verse 14. If you remember... Jesus does the miracle of the 5,000. Here's the flow of the chapter. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Then Jesus' disciples, and then Jesus, and then the crowd that remains cross the sea. They go to Capernaum, and then Jesus does an extensive teaching on what the meaning of that miracle is. And we get the response to the crowd. We get the response to the Jews. Then we get the response to the disciples. We'll end with the response of the apostles, the 12. And so way at the beginning... What messianic title is put forward by the people when they see the sign? It's right there in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is a title John's gospel has brought up before. If you remember, when the Jews from Jerusalem, the Pharisees, sent a delegation to question John the Baptist, and they said, who are you? Are you the Christ? No. Are you the prophet? Who's the prophet? Turn to Deuteronomy 18. Turn to Deuteronomy 18. The people, you got to give the people more credit, the credit that's due. 
They've put some of this together. They've put together, we're out in a wilderness-like place. There's miraculous feeding. Hmm, back in Israel's history, God in the wilderness fed them with manna. And they put together, this might be the prophet. They, they, they do some biblical theology and they sort of get it right as far as it goes. Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is Moses writing to the people of Israel before he's about to die. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Jump down to verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Turn back to John 6. So it is not for nothing in a chapter that begins with the people saying, this is it. This is the prophet like Moses. He's doing works like Moses did. That John puts in the mouths of his disciples, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? You see, the one requirement that God gave, insistent, explicitly, repeated, with threats, of your response to the prophet like Moses is you need to listen to him. And listen, of course, means more than hear. It means receive. It means submit. Like the Proverbs, listen to my voice, my son. Give heed to your mother's counsel. Listen to him. This is when when Jesus goes up in the Mount of Transfiguration, when we studied Luke 9.35, what does God the Father say? Voice came out of heaven saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That's the connection. Jesus had said some hard sayings and his disciples, they can't listen to it. See, the great irony of John 6 is when the crowd meets up with Jesus, Jesus is unwilling to give them what they want, more food. What Jesus offers to give them, they have no interest in. It's tragic. He won't give them what they want and what he's offering, they don't want. These disciples, who, who can listen to it? Who can listen? Who can accept it? It's tragic. So point one, they reject Jesus as the prophet. Functionally, they reject him as the prophet. Whatever else they might be saying, whatever confessions might be going on, practically, do they respond to him as the people of God are commanded to respond to the prophet like Moses that God will raise up? No. No. No doubt about it. No. They don't. They reject Jesus as the prophet. Why? Because they trust in their own understanding. Jesus' rebuke will make that plain. And this is, this is a question we've got to ask ourselves when we come to challenging texts. And, and the question is, are we under the authority of God's word or is God's word under our authority? And, and the reason why I picked some difficult examples at the beginning is because the test of your submission to God's word is not found in those passages you love. The test of your submission to God's word is not found in the verses you have framed on your wall or on T-shirts, or bumper stickers. The test of your submission to God's word are those passages that seem most difficult, most angular, most hard, most ugly to your eyes. That's the test. I I use this example. It takes no authority for me to take out a $50 bill and say, here, take this. The test of authority is, is can I say to you, and I don't believe I have this authority, but the test of authority is, could I say to you, open your wallet, give me $50? That's where we find out. You know, the danger with a lot of liberal Christianity is they simply affirm those passages that they like and they ignore 
They, they qualify out of existence those passages they don't like. Well, then the Bible simply becomes a mirror. The Bible then only just tells you what you already thought. You just, you just keep the parts you already liked, and you ignore the parts you don't like. There really are actually four things you can do with those hard passages. Four things. First, you can just flat out deny them. Some, some in, the, in the more liberal mainline denominations, just do that. Paul, Paul's a bigot. Um, Jesus didn't say that. Moses didn't write that. Like Thomas Jefferson, you can just cut and paste those portions you like, and you can get the turn the other cheek, and you can get the love your neighbors, and you can just basically cherry pick from the Sermon on the Mount, and you can ignore the stuff where Jesus says he's God, and you can ignore the stuff about self-denial, and you can, you can just sort of pick and choose, you know, like choose your own adventure, Jesus, and you're just worshiping yourself. You're just worshiping a mirror. In other words, what you're only submitting to, quote-unquote, are those things you already thought was true, those things you already agreed with. Because what it means practically is when God says something and you say something and they disagree, you win. Who's the authority? You are. You're God. That's one option. Two, you can just ignore it. This is a little better. For those people that don't have the rebellion in them to deny it, let's just stay away from the scary passages. Let's not read about the massacre of the Amalekites. Let's not read those hard, scary passages. Let's stick around the happy ones. Let's just focus on those ones. That's one option you can do. It's not very useful, but at least it's not flat-out rebellion. It's just avoiding the scary places. Okay. Third, you can just sort of qualify them into non-existence. And you can come up with... uh, elaborate explanations why the text doesn't mean what it plainly means. We're to read. We read this morning. Jesus, I chose you. I got friends of mine who insist what Jesus is really saying is they chose him. Okay. So you can deny them. You can ignore them. You can qualify them and reinterpret them. Or you can receive and submit to them. And you can say, Lord, I don't understand this. I mean, (laughs) don't lie to God. Lord, this doesn't look beautiful to me. But you say that in a way that makes it clear you understand that that speaks to my deformity. That speaks to my corruption. That speaks to my darkness. Jesus is going to insist his words are spirit and life. So when I look at God's word and it seems ugly and hard and difficult, it's revealing some corruption in me. But admit, God, help, help me understand. Help me to see. That's what you can do. There's at least four options when you come to difficult passages. But these people trust in their understanding. They trust in their understanding. In other words, Jesus has given them the proof that he is the prophet like Moses. He's worked the signs and the miracles. In John 5, he does not demand we simply take his word for it. He has the credentials. And then having the credentials, he demands they take his word seriously. And it's that demand in John 5 and it's that demand in John 6 that they trip up over Jesus demands they, they trust in his word. And so if you've rightly understood the Messiah, if you've rightly understood this is the prophet, and he says something hard, you understand. I think a faithful response might be, I'm sure you're right, I don't understand. Help me help explain. The disciples regularly would come to Jesus. What do you mean? What does this mean? That's fine. I don't think Peter and the 12, Peter and the 11 here, get everything he's saying. I don't think it's like they're saying, yeah, that's really good, that flesh and blood. Mm, That's a nice metaphor, beautiful. No, I I think they're probably just as gobsmacked as the rest. But this is the prophet God sent like Moses. We're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. They trust in their own understanding. It's It's the warning given 
in Proverbs 3, 5. Don't lean on your understanding. In other words, because I don't understand this, because this seems hard, then I'm going to ignore it, put it up, and walk away. That's, that's what they conclude. So Jesus responds. Jesus responds to them. Jesus' answer. And I'm going to summarize his answer this way, even though these words don't appear um, in the text. I, I would argue Jesus' answer to them and their complaint is that they must repent and believe. They must repent and believe. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He said, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So, first he rebukes and challenges their grumbling. Now, John, in verse 6, he simply said, they said. But then, in 61, we're told that the way they were saying it was not. I mean, I think there probably is a way you can say, wow, this is hard. This is really hard. I think there's a way you can say that, that honors God. It's recognizing your, your weakness. It's recognizing your, your, your difficulty. There are passages even now that I think are hard. And I'm not talking about those passages that are hard to understand. There's some complicated passages I'm not sure what the author's talking about. This is about the hardness of receiving what Jesus is saying, submitting to it. But they do it in a grumbling fashion. And that's the key issue here. And by saying they were grumbling, John links them of one type and stripe with the Jews before them. Both their fathers in the wilderness, whose besetting sin was grumbling, but really just the back to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. See, Jesus' disciples' response the crowd's response and the Jews in Capernaum's response to his word is of one type. It's grumbling. And this is just the culmination of a long line of grumbling from all the way back to the Exodus. Don't, don't think that grumbling and complaining is a small thing. It was the besetting sin of Israel and why they all died in the wilderness over 40 years. They grumbled. So his disciples are not saying this is hard. Who can listen to it from any sense of weakness, from any sense of help me understand. But they're grumbling. They don't like it. This is stupid. This is not good teaching. Who can, who can endure this? Who can put up with this? Huh. So Jesus rebukes it. Jesus rebukes it. They respond as the Jews did. And he says to them, and again, notice how Jesus doesn't back down. The temptation for us when someone's offended by the message, is to say, well, no, no, you're misunderstanding. It's not really as bad as you think it is. Jesus doubles down, and we find out why, why he's unflinching so far, why Jesus is, is not backing down on his claims, because there's a far greater offense coming. There's a far greater offense coming. Point two, his crucifixion will give them far greater offense. What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And how does Jesus ascend to where he was before? It's by means of the cross. That point's made clear in John 17 with Jesus' high priestly prayer. He returns to the Father by being lifted up on a tree. And so what I think Jesus is saying is, I can't back down these claims. I can't soften my message. 
because if you're going to be my disciple, if you're, if you're going to be someone believing in me, you not only need to take in and receive and eat and, and, and process what I've just said, you're going to have to receive me hanging on a tree as a crucified criminal. That's why he can't back down his claims. Far more offense is coming to those who would be so offended. What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? This, this sort of links back to Jesus in John 3 with Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man ascend or be lifted up. Jesus will return to glory, but he returns to glory through the ignominy of the cross. And we know that at the cross, there's not going to be many people cheering for Jesus. There's going to be very few disciples whose faith endures that. And so Jesus is not doing them, would not be doing them any favors if he backed down his claims. He's not, would not be doing them any favors if he backed down his claims. His crucifixion will give them far, far greater offense. And so he, he doubles down. Do you take offense at this? And what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Point two, they require and must rely upon God's spirit and word. This is why I said they're trusting in the flesh. They're trusting in their own thoughts because Jesus' correction to them helps us understand what is going wrong in their thinking. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all, which is to say, if you try to sort through what I've just said in your own strength, with your own minds, with your own thinking, it's not going to help you. So don't do that. You know, like the proverb said, lean not on your own understanding. And so Jesus also in saying this with the flesh and spirit metaphor makes it clear, lest there be any doubts, he's not literally speaking about cannibalism or the Eucharist. He, he, he's making it clear we're not really talking about eating flesh. The flesh profits nothing. It's of no help. It's the spirit who gives life. And again, this is a note Jesus has been hitting throughout the gospel. Nicodemus, you can't see. You can't understand. You can't enter the kingdom unless you are born by the spirit who births as he wills like the wind that blows around. Jesus speaking to people far too self-confident in their own ability to size things up their own ability to figure things out. And he tells the teacher of Israel, you're not qualified to interpret me. What makes you think you'd know truth if you saw it, Nick? Is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. No, you, you need God's enablement. He said as much in this chapter already. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him on the last day. That is a note of dependence. You depend upon something you cannot control, Jesus says. And so here he reminds them, it's the spirit who gives life. Which is to say, what would a proper response to a hard teaching be? Lord, I need your spirit to help me understand and apply and receive and see the goodness in this very hard, hard word. I think that's a faithful response to hard teaching. God, would, you, would your spirit teach me? Jesus said earlier, let me taught of God. Will, will your spirit teach me? Give me the faith and the grace to receive this. I can't on my own. It looks too hard. It looks too difficult. 
That'd be, that'd be a gracious right response. Depend upon the Spirit. So they require and must rely on God's Spirit. The Spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. But Jesus has already declared himself to be the one who gives the Spirit. In, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove. So Jesus receives the Spirit, and he's given the Spirit without measure. And what does he tell the woman at the well? If you knew who it was who was talking to you and the gift of God, you'd ask of him. You'd ask of him. And he'd give you living water. What's that living water? That's the Holy Spirit. So you, can, you can't make the Spirit birth. You can't make God draw you. But you can ask for it. You can humble yourself. Please help me. You can do that. Spirit gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. But then Jesus intensifies even further. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. That is a huge claim. Huge claim. That's another reason why Jesus can't drop this point. They are choking on his words. His words are spirit and life. So I can't, can't, you don't like these words? I'll get you some other words. No, these are the words. These are the words. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus' words are spirit and life. Now, we don't have time. I'd, I'd recommend you go to Ezekiel 37 sometime and read the chapter of the, the Valley of Dry Bones. How does God resurrect dry bones and put flesh and sinew on them? He, his word. The word of God makes the people of God. And, and you've heard me say before, it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. You need to believe Jesus And part of the reason for that is Jesus is the word. He is the message. He is the communication. He is the one exclusively who translates or narrates, however you want to translate that verb in 118, the father. And so you can't separate the word of the word from the word. You can't separate the message of the message from the message. Jesus is the message. He is the word. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in son, as if the language God chose to speak was the language of son. There, there cannot ever be any successful attempt to bifurcate the one who is the word from his words. All, all attempts at that are vain. His words are spirit and life. This almost surely echoes Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, where Jeremiah says to the Lord, your words were found and I ate them. And your words came to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Jesus is insisting the very thing they need is his word. And we know, how does the Holy Spirit beget life? Well, according to 1 Peter and James, you are born again, not by perishable seed, but by the living and abiding word of God or James of his own will he brought us forth it's the kind of first fruits from the word of truth the Holy Spirit takes the seed of the word of God and makes it sprout and grow in our hearts and Jesus is saying his words are the word of God his words are spirit and life this is why there can't be any playing around with Jesus words well we won't tell them about these words of Jesus they may not like them this is why Jesus is doubling down because you can't bifurcate and separate the one who is the word from his words. It's impossible. It's a fool's errand. Jesus' words are spirit and life, which brings us then to the conclusion. Their rejection of his words. This is the critical point. 
Their rejection of his words is unbelief in him. Their rejection of his words is unbelief in him. Now it becomes plain at the end of this paragraph because they go home. But understand, the conflict is his teaching. That's the issue of conflict. That's why I said you can be a disciple and go to hell. It's not as though first you believe and become a Christian, then later you become a disciple. These are disciples who forsake him. And the critical issue in this passage is what you do with Jesus' word. What you do with Jesus' word. Turn, turn to John 8. I want to highlight this for you. I'm sure we'll get there sometime next year, but okay, that was a joke. There you go. John 8. I'll just highlight a couple verses really quickly because, again, receiving Jesus as the new lawgiver, receiving Jesus as the prophet like Moses, the threat, the warning that God gives, those who won't listen, God's going to require it of them. It's not optional. John 8, 31 to 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, surely they're saved, they're good, right? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Oh, what marks a true disciple? Oh, hey, they abide in his word. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jump down to verse 30. They don't like this. Verse 37. Spoiler, they're sons of the devil, the Jews who believed in him. Verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Why would they seek to kill him? Because my word finds no place in you. John 8, 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. John 8, 45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. And then 8, 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear him, he said to the Jews who had believed in him, is because you are not of God. And then 851, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, there's a pretty consistent theme in John that you got to take Jesus and his word. You can't separate them. You can't just sort of keep the parts of Jesus you like. And then just sort of ignore or reject the parts you don't. Now, Jesus' insistence that you have to respond to his word as the word of God given by the new Moses, the new lawgiver. He's insistent here. He's insistent there. And he tells them plainly they don't believe. It's not me saying, well, this is unbelief. Jesus says it's unbelief. Verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. But Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who betray him. So, so understand this. Rejecting Jesus' teaching is rejecting Jesus. Rejecting Jesus' teaching is rejecting Jesus. Not believing Jesus' word is not believing Jesus. And at least these false disciples have the honesty to recognize it and go home. The worst thing you could do is tell yourself, no, it's okay. I pick and choose what Jesus says and what I obey and what I don't obey and what words I submit to and which ones I like and don't like, but I'm okay. These guys at least have the honesty to be like, no, you're right. We're going to go home. We don't like your teaching, so we're not your disciples, so we're going home. Now, here we get a word of Jesus' divine knowledge. He, he knows who they are. He knows which ones don't believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe. This is a repeated theme in John. I've got to move. We may not finish John 6 after all today. Um, 
I'm beginning to suspect. Let's get the second point here. Faith in Jesus is decisively enabled by God. Faith in Jesus is decisively enabled by God. This is not the second time Jesus has said this in John 6. And when our Lord repeats himself, I would suggest to you it's significant. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. Now get this. Jesus is explaining the unbelief of his disciples. Why is it that some of his disciples do not believe? Jesus says, this is why. Get the connection. The reason why I told you this is because there are some of you who don't believe. That's what he says. Get the logic. The reason why I already told you this, he told them back in 644, is because there's some of you who don't believe. Why is it that some of his disciples don't believe? Well, it's because no one can come to him unless the Father sent me draws him. It's pretty angular. There are a lot of people I know who find that real hard to hear. And I'm not trying to pretend it's not. It, these, these truths are hard. People have wrestled with them through years. And there's a faithful and good wrestling. Lord, I, I, I want to receive this as beautiful. It still looks hard. Praise God. That's fantastic. Do that. But if you put yourself as an authority over the text, you know, God, until you can explain this thing that really looks stupid to me, I'm just going to ignore it. I don't get it. That just seems weird. Well, then who's the authority? You are. You are. Faith in Jesus is decisively enabled by God. Now, Jesus has said this plainly. This is hard. But 644, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. I'll raise him up on the last day. So Jesus rebukes them and he warns them, tells them to stop relying on their flesh. He knows which of them don't believe. He's not fooled by them. And he tells them the reason is because no one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him. What's the response? It's absolutely tragic. Absolutely tragic. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Be, let me be clear. These people are not Christians. They have rejected Jesus and his teaching and they've gone home. Now, we don't know what the future holds for them, but in this moment in the text, these are unbelievers. Jesus has said you don't believe and that's at least one word they receive of Jesus because they go up and they go home. Absolutely tragic. That's why I'm saying discipleship is enough. You need to set the bar higher than these guys and these guys are called disciples. Very, very quickly. I, and we'll probably have to pick this up next week. Um, but I want to round the corner at least to what Jesus says to the 12. Jesus establishes the faith of the 12. Jesus asks the 12 if they want to go away as well. Now that may seem harsh initially, but this, this line in the river, this Rubicon, what do you do with Jesus' hard words? What do you do with them? Jesus doesn't apologize for them. He gives them some more hard words. What do you do with them? Am I the new lawgiver? Am I the prophet like Moses? Or not? Oh, you're surprised that some of the teaching of the new Moses, the new lawgiver, is hard? I'm pretty sure when the Israelites first heard the law, there are parts of it that they were scratching their heads about as well. Why would you assume or think the prophet like Moses would say things that would all be music to your ears? So Jesus turns to the 12. He, so he turns to the 12. Why? Because the, the negative response of Jesus' disciples demands an equal response for faith. In, in John 3, we read 
19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those who do have faith, those who have been drawn by the Father, they need an opportunity. They want to reveal that. They want to bring that to light. So in the, in the face of the apostasy of the disciples, it's only fitting for those whom the Father has called and drawn to have an opportunity to confess their faith. That's why Jesus turns to them and he asks them if they want to go away as well. And Peter's confession, I love this. I absolutely love this. Again, I do not think Peter has put all this together. I think there's a, I would guess, Peter, I have, I'm not really sure about that whole eating flesh, drinking blood stuff. I'm going to need to think on that. That was hard. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Peter agreed that that was a tough one. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what to do with that one. But he is sure of one thing. And again, notice what this entire issue of discipleship resolves around. It's around Jesus' words and being life. Here, Peter speaks, I don't know many things, Peter says, but I know this. You, you have the words of life. Which is, again, a response of faith. If I don't think they look beautiful, it speaks ill of me. Because your, your words are life, Jesus says. Your, your words are life, so I'm not going anywhere. And where else would I go? It's not like there's multiple avenues for words of life. This is it. God has raised up one prophet. He has sent one Messiah. And it's to him we shall listen. This is what faith means. I want, I want, I'll give you one example briefly of what of, of, just struck me 10, 12 years ago when I saw this. What this looks like, what do you do with the hard teachings of Scripture? We had a young woman, a Simpson student, knock on our door. Um, she was angry. She had met with one of our Simpson students here. I'm going to protect the names to protect the guilty and the innocent alike. And, and this, the Simps, this other Simpson student had told her, apparently kind of casually, when he found out that she wanted to be a Methodist pastor, you can't be a pastor, you're a woman. Amazingly, that didn't go well. And so, so when she was like, what? This Simpson student said, oh, I'll go talk to Jeremy. And so I get, I get this person on my doorstep who I've met like once. Serena and I welcome her in. She sits down. And, and very quickly I say, look, um, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna twist your arm on this stuff. Let me tell you, there are definitely some passages that at the very least could credibly be read the way this other person told you they were read. But I really wanna challenge you with the question of, before you even come to the text, is the text the authority or is the text accountable to you? Let me put it to you this way. This is a question I'll ask people frequently. What if you were persuaded the Bible did indeed, in fact, teach women can't be pastors? What if you were persuaded? Then what? Then what? What would you do then? And so gave her this to think through, gave her a list of some passages to read. She came back to Serena's my living room about a week later, comes in, still clearly visibly um, agitated. Well, I read those passages. Okay, what'd you, what'd you think? Oh, they, they say I can't be a pastor. Okay, uh, what do you think about that? I hate it. Okay, so what are you going to do? Well, clearly I can't be a pastor. Amen. No, no, I mean, seriously, that's the test. In this moment, I hate this. In the moment, I resent it. But this is what God has said, and so I will obey. Now, the good news is within the next few weeks, because God, God honors those who humble themselves, and he exalts those who humble themselves. In the next few weeks, this, this young lady came to see the beauty and the goodness in that. She's 
she's not still hating that teaching. But that's the test of authority. Dude, there's no clearer sign to me of faith than something like that. I hate in my flesh what I see here, and yet I will submit to it. That's faith. And Peter gives us this model. Where else shall I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Um, Jesus asked this in response to the disciples' apostasy. Peter makes this great confession. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter doesn't know much, but he knows one thing. Jesus' words are the words of life. Jesus is the Holy One of God, and so I'm not going anywhere. I I love this confession of Peter, and I love the man who says, I believe, help my unbelief. If you are struggling with what God's Word says, if you're struggling with receiving hard teachings, you can do that as a faithful child of God. You can do that in a way that honors God. Or you can do that in a way, and you all know this, the difference between a child saying, yes, Mom, yes, Dad, Dad, but, but why? Why do I have to do this? That's an honoring way. And you all know the difference between that and why? Right? You know what I'm talking about. The demanding, you're accountable to me. Your explanation better be pretty good. And we dare not ask the Lord why, like an entitled child, but to struggle with God's word, to wrestle with it, to ask for help from a father. Lord, my flesh can't make sense of this. I'm going to need your spirit. Please help. This is hard. This is really hard. And there are some hard teachings. There are some people that God's word to them is suffer, persevere, close your mouth, keep your head down, suffer. Read, read Peter's instruction to slaves whose masters beat them in First Peter 2. That's a hard word. That's certainly a hard word. There are others. And it's okay to struggle. It's okay to recognize our weakness. Let us respond in faith like Peter. This is Mark's out Jesus' disciples, those who receive his word and eat his word and internalize his word, and those who place themselves as an authority over his word. And they go home. They go home. Jesus' words are life. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Listen to him. Obey him. Keep his word. Even if you find it hard. Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. Let's pray. Lord God. Give us the grace to admit our own frailty and weakness. Lord, we confess that in our weakness and frailty, there are portions of your good, righteous, perfect word that to our eyes look ugly, hard, unreasonable at times. But Lord, we confess that only reveals our corruption. And so Lord, we ask for your spirit to give us eyes to see, to help us to see the goodness and the beauty in your word, that we would not ignore your word, that we would not deny your word, that we would not try to give your word a makeover to make it more palatable, but give us the faith to receive it as what it is, spirit and life. We might prove to be true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we rejoice that you have kept your word. You did raise up for us a prophet like Moses from among his brothers. And now, O Lord, give us the faith to listen to him. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.